0: In the story of God, the table is kind of a deal. The feast pick up in Leviticus where the plagues leave off. The last plague, the one that finally set the Israelites free from Egypt, used as blood to mark the houses of the Israelites and then in every non-Israelite home, every home with no blood on the doors, the firstborn is struck dead. That means in one horrific night, thousands of egyptians or millions more likely are struck down not a single unmarked home goes un you know spared every firstborn male is taken every every home even the egyptian pharaoh's son after 400 years of slavery and nine plagues worth of negotiation, God had created a dynamic that broke the chains and drove the children of Egypt out of—excuse uh, or, or me—the children of Israel out of Egypt. Can you even imagine what that must have been like? I mean, the the sound of horror in the air for not just weeks but months, just the the scream of grief that must have been in the air, the sound of wailing, the cry of grieving people after the Lord called for the slaughter of all the firstborn among the Egyptians who'd been enslaving God's people for hundreds of years. And while the Egyptians cried, the Israelites picked up everything they could carry with them and they started walking. People with no history of freedom And with no gift of faith, really, picked up their very lives and they walked out into the desert. The call of God was this. Let my people go so they can worship me. If you're taking notes, that should be at the top of your page. Write that down. Let my people go so they can worship me. Their story becomes the picture and pattern for redemption. It is the story of how blood, blood, poured out, marked us as his, sets us free. And to help them remember the story, because who doesn't like connecting a good story with food? It's why we buy popcorn at the movie, right? God gives them a series of feasts, and each feast enacts a piece of the story of God's people. The last chapters of Leviticus describe these feasts. There were three in the spring, the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the Feast of First fru- Fruits. And then there were three feasts in the fall, the Feast of Trumpets, the Feast Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. And our story is told by those six feasts Feasts, first, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of slavery, who provided for you in the desert, who journeyed with you in the promised land. And remember who you, where you came from. Remember whose you are. Remember where you're going. And then with those three feasts, the story on either side, three in the spring, three in the fall, there was one feast sitting in the middle, the Feast of Pentecost, the ingathering of the first spring harvest, which teaches me that it has always been God's intention to have his people gather in the harvest, set the table, and tell the story. And that's what feasts do. Feasts are a way for the people of Israel to keep rehearsing their story around the table from generation to generation. Our our story has always been told around the table. In fact, tables are what defined Jesus' last days. So I wanna sit with you at some of those tables at which Jesus found himself in the the days leading up to the Last Supper. We're gonna wander around a little in the books of John and Mark in the New Testament, and of course the best way to engage the message is with the Bible, something to write on, something to write with, so I want you to get your Bible out, turn with me to John, uh, we're gonna start in John, then we're gonna flip back to Mark, and then we're gonna flip back to John so we can get the whole story. We're gonna start with John chapter 12. John chapter 12, and I'm really just gonna tell you these stories for the most part. John chapter 12, six days it says. John chapter 12 verse one, six days before the Passover. The meal that remembered God's deliverance from slavery. Jesus went to the home of his friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. John paints this scene for us. Martha is serving, which is what Martha's do. Lazarus is just glad to be alive. He's actually died and Jesus has already resurrected him. I bet you do not complain about the menu when you've been recently resurrected. And Mary is fixated on Jesus' feet again, which is what Mary's do. But it isn't just the four of them at this feast. Evidently, some of Jesus' followers were there, some of his inner circle, and also a large crowd of Jewish people, John tells us, who had heard about the miracle of Lazarus being raised from the dead. So this is quite a table, and in the middle of it, Mary evidently becomes so overwhelmed with devotion. She may not even know why she does it, but right then, she picks up, right there at that table, She picks up a pint of very expensive oil. I mean, it says, this is a year's wages worth of oil. And she pours it on Jesus' feet and she wipes it with his hair, with her hair. She wipes his feet with her hair. Women, he has to be the Messiah of the universe for you to wipe his feet with your hair, amen? It's pure devotion. That perfume was a year's worth of wages wasted on one man's feet and Judas is particularly disturbed by the waste. That money could have been given to the poor, he says. Not because he cares about the poor but because he has an issue with money. And Jesus told him, you've always got poor people with you but not me, let her be. That's what he says, just let her be. Let her do what she's doing which teaches me the difference between social work and devotion. I coined a phrase last week for myself, multi-pastoring. It's sort of like multitasking but with people, trying to be what every person needs um, rather than placing my energy and time on the specific call Jesus has given me. I think we can also multi-parent, or multi-employer, or multi-task our resources so that we so spread the oil so thin that we end up missing the feet of Jesus completely. It's what I was trying to do with communion. When we first came back from COVID exile, I was trying so hard to care for all the audiences that I missed the pure devotion of this act and we all lost out. My prayer now for our online audience is that the witness of communion will make you hungry for it. And for our in-house community, that the restoration of a more spiritual communion will give you a Mary's devotion for Jesus. Okay, so fast forward four days. Now it's two days before Passover. Mark chapter 14, flip back a little bit to Mark chapter 14, verse one. And Jesus is at another table. This time he's in the home of Simon the leper. (laughs) Isn't that great? And they're eating and it happens again. A woman comes into the house and she cracks open a jar of expensive perfume and this time she pours it on his head. Twice in four days he's been anointed with oil by women while he's sitting at a table. And both times the disciples grumble about the cost of the oil and the misuse of funds. Couldn't this have been sold and the funds used to care for the poor? And some people say, well then this must be the same story because it's, just, it's told in two different ways because why would the disciples have the same response twice to which I would reply, you must not read the Bible very often. (laughs) And you must also not be a parent. Because people get told things all the time that don't sink in. When they're living, I mean, people get told all the times that don't sink in because they don't want to hear them. Amen? They get told things all the time because they don't want to do them. Maybe these guys just don't want to hear what's actually happening. Jesus is being anointed for burial. And even the women doing these things don't understand the depth of what they're doing. Listen, this is so powerful. This is how it was done. Six days before Passover, an unblemished lamb was chosen for the sacrifice. On the first day, its feet were anointed with oil, just as Mary did with Jesus. And two days before the Passover, its head would be anointed, just as Jesus' head was anointed by this woman. These faithful women are being used to enact a mystery they cannot even verbalize, don't even understand. That's the nature of a sacrament. Just because we don't fully get the nature of it, don't fully understand the depth of it, doesn't mean it doesn't have meaning, isn't serving a purpose. These women help us understand that simple elements can speak profound truths into the universe. Yes. And we can participate in that speech even if we are not fully aware of what it all means. Yes. Yes. That's true. No. Yes. Psalm 22 and 23 are some of my favorite passages in scripture. Psalm 22 contains the seven last words of Jesus on the cross. It's the scene of Jesus taking on our sin and dying our death. Psalm 22 is Good Friday. And then Psalm 23 takes us through Saturday. It walks us through the valley of shadows, the valley of death, but it points us to arise on the other side of that valley where there's a table set by God himself You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. It says in Psalm 23, my cup overflows. This is about how to walk through trouble with a feast mentality. It's a psalm of both death and resurrection. David shows us what it means to get a feast mentality. It is to set your face toward the table while you're still in the valley. To believe the story is true even when life is hard. And to trust the mystery. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you're you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. So now Jesus, the Passover lamb, has been anointed. Mark 14, verse 12. And it's the first day of Passover. And the lamb is ready to be sacrificed. A room is supernaturally prepared for them. And that evening, Jesus arrives with his disciples and they arrange themselves around this table. And this is how the meal begins. (laughs) I don't recommend this host today. He says, one of you is going to betray me. (laughs) In that moment, you have to wonder how Judas felt. You know? Because he's already talked with the chief priests. He's already talked with them. He's already struck a deal. When Mary poured ointment on the feet of Jesus, Judas lost patience. He just couldn't believe Jesus would allow such waste. When the world was so full of injustice, he couldn't believe Jesus was okay with smallness and nobody else seemed to get it. Not even Jesus, who was supposed to know everything, not even Jesus seemed to grasp that Judas was taking money from the money box or that ground was being lost from their movement After all, Jesus still invited him to sit at the head table in a place of honor at the Passover meal. So when Jesus says somebody's gonna betray him, does Judas feel found out? Or has he so compartmentalized his life that he can sit there at that table and feel absolutely nothing? Who knows why he did what he did? But for whatever reason, Judas decided for a handful of cash to turn Jesus in. The Bible says Satan entered his heart. And from that point on, Judas, who thought he was taking back control, lost all of it. Whew. There's a word that's being tossed around a lot these days. If you're online, especially if you're in my world, you see it a lot, deconstruction. Do you see that word much these days? Deconstruction. It's another way of talking about liminality, which is also kind of a 25 cent word. Deconstruction or liminality is what happens when you go through a big event like say divorce or the loss of a child or a major illness or, or a pandemic. That's why it's being tossed around a lot these days. It's something that shakes you up. And it can make you question things that you always valued. Um, A trauma will cause you to deconstruct your belief system, to pick it apart, to decide what's really true and, and what doesn't work anymore. So there's a lot of talk these days, you know, about deconstructing what we thought we believed about life, or deconstructing what I, you know, I'm, I'm I'm deconstructing what I believe about religion, or I'm deconstructing what I believe about my, my career, or my, you know, my personal values. People talk about that a lot. A lot. And you know, the life event doesn't actually have to be negative in order for people to, to find themselves in deconstruction mode. When I first became a pastor, my whole approach to worship got deconstructed. I'd only been part of traditional churches, had only planned traditional worship and assumed I would only plan traditional worship. I don't know if you saw me on Facebook last week, but I I wore a robe last week for the first time and I don't know when. And it just feels like I am in another planet when I am wearing a robe. It's strange to say now that I thought when I left seminary that I would only plan traditional worship because I have only done contemporary worship since I walked into ministry. And when I started a contemporary church from nothing, I found myself asking fundamental questions like what is church supposed to be? what is worship, do I really care about things like liturgy or the creeds, or what exactly do I care about, what does Jesus care about, and when I was asking those questions, a lot of things I thought I valued got tossed, and some of them did not get replaced. That's the problem with deconstruction. We can become hypercritical of things and tear them down without any clear vision of what God is trying to build. Does that make sense? That's the difference between Judas and Jesus. Judas saw what Jesus was deconstructing but failed to see what was being reconstructed. Jesus, Jesus started with the table, dismantling a corrupt system that left people in constant spiritual deficit, unable to receive grace, but he didn't toss the fundamentals, he redefined them. He placed the heart of God at the center, the life of God, and embedded in that life is gratitude, self-giving, and grace. And so Mark chapter 14, verse 22, while they were eating, Jesus took the bread of Passover and he reconstructed. When he had given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples. And he said, take it, this is my body. And then, he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly I tell you, I will not drink from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And then if we flip quickly back over to chapter 13, John chapter 13, we're told the rest of that scene. As that meal was happening, as Jesus was reconstructing the covenant between God and his people, he takes off his garment, he wraps a towel around his waist, and he begins to wash his disciples' feet. It's a bizarre moment, it's every bit as awkward as Mary pouring oil over his feet in the middle of that mayhem when Jesus was at her house and every bit as contentious for the disciples who seem to want to argue with Jesus about everything. But he's not listening. He's completely focused on reconstructing. He says, I want you to read this with me. Is it up? will it be up, yeah, a new command, I want you to read this with me, ready, go. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another, which is to say, Focus on Jesus and trust the sacrifice even if you don't understand all of it and don't so deconstruct the gospel that it means nothing to anyone. And be thankful to God that there is a way through the valley to the feast at the other side. And give and show grace because Jesus did, even at the table, even to his enemies, demonstrating that they were welcome but their sins were not. And love each other. Loving each other means at least all these things. Do you know he washed... Judas' feet. (laughs) I can't imagine that. He washed Judas' feet. I believe most of all it means bringing people to this table and rehearsing our story so they can find themselves in it and so they can discover that they are welcome to seek freedom from slavery to sin and death. It's the same exact call as the very first Passover. Let my people go so they may worship me. He reconstructed the elements, but the call is exactly the same. Let my people go, so they may worship me. So I wanna invite you to experience this table with all your senses. I wanna ask you to prepare your cup and your wafer. If you've never used one of these before, there's two parts to it. You take the little clear cellophane part off first And that gives you the wafer. And then you pull the foil part. And if somehow you can't make it work or you need another one, just lift your hand and Krista will bring you one. Anyone else need another one or need one? (laughs) You need one? Okay. (laughs) All right. In this moment right now, I'm gonna ask if you would just, Tevin, if you would just take the lights down. I want to invite you to experience this table, as I said, with all your senses. You're at the table with Jesus. And a feast has been set before you. Your enemies are present, but they're not invited to eat. Who are those enemies? Don't be tempted to name only flesh and blood foes. That's too easy. Name your real enemies, your weaknesses, sins, wounds, and regrets. Assuming they had legs and could stand before this table, name them as they stand before you. And now picture those same enemies standing before the table where Jesus and his disciples are eating. There's a feast of food, including the bread and the wine that he will redefine as the elements of the new covenant. And You're with Jesus and your sins are watching you at this feast. As Jesus breaks the bread, proclaims his power over the sins of the world, and passes it, you take and eat. And I invite you to take and eat. As he passes the cup of the new covenant, you drink deeply. So I want you to notice what's happening in this scene. You're still in it. You're at the table with Jesus. You get the elements of communion, but your sins are not invited. You get bread and wine. Your sins get nothing. Your spirit is being nourished at this table while your sins are being starved. Can you picture it? I want you to sit here for a moment. Allow the Holy Spirit to speak into your spirit, deep calling into deep. Sense your spirit being fed and strengthened by what you have just received. And ask your Father right now to drain your sins of their power over your life. now Jesus washes your feet is his way of saying that he wants you to feel completely and wholly clean fully his he looks into your face can you imagine it he looks into your face as he washes your feet he's not ashamed He is tenderly caring for you, and you belong to him, and you belong here. You belong at this table. And as he finishes, I want you to hear this word over your life. In the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. And if you have received that forgiveness, your sins have left the room. There at that table with Jesus, thank your heavenly Father for giving you a place at the table. Thank him for the feast of grace and righteousness that leads to life. Thank Him for loving you. Thank Him for the mystery. For things that have no words. God, we give you thanks. We give you thanks. For grace, we give you thanks. And now I just want to invite you to stand. worship him. Thanks for taking the time to listen to our message. If you live in the area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you. Visit us or check out our website at mosaicchurchevans.org for more information. May God bless your day.